Red Kite Prayer is hosting its first-ever event October 12th through 14th, 2018, the Red Kite Rendezvous. The two-and-a-half-day event will feature bikes from some of the industry's top frame builders, two gravel rides, some of the world's finest craft beers, which are brewed locally, plus enough food to make the pedaling fun. For more information or to register, go to redkiteprayer.com backslash store. The Pull is brought to you by the North American Handmade Bicycle Show, the world's premier annual gathering of bicycle frame builders and frame building enthusiasts. The 2019 show will take place March 15th to 17th at the Sacramento Convention Center in Sacramento, California. We hope to see you there. From Red Kite Prayer, I'm Patrick Brady with The Pull. On this week's show, my guest is frame builder Mark Danucci. In the first part of our interview with Mark, we discussed his early history as a builder, as well as his time at Specialized Bicycle Components. In part two, we get into some of the work he has done as a contract engineer, as well as his return to the bench as a builder. We take a pretty deep dive into lug work and the brass fillets that he sometimes adds to them and the distinctive look they give, not to mention the workmanship required to execute them. Again, this is the second installment of our two-part interview. You can find part one wherever you get this podcast. And now, back to our interview with Mark Danucci. After leaving Specialized, you spent some time with Sapa. And then you did a bunch of freelance engineering work for different bike companies. I know Evil was in there. Who are some of the various clients that you've had, uh, and what what are some of the projects that came out of that? Well, I had a lot of different clients at Sapa, um, European guys, American guys, even Santa Cruz, I think, was at Sapa. And then after uh, Sapa... I did uh, a couple bikes for Evil Bike Company, but that didn't work out very well for me. I spent a whole bunch of time working on that Evil Bike and got all over my computer into places I'd never been, and I was really familiar with the software like never before. Uh, I'm sitting here, it's 2008 and early 2009 or whatever, and Lost a lot of money in the stock market and lost a job and didn't get paid by evil. And I'm sitting here going, okay, what do I do now? And the, they had a bike show in Portland and it was a pretty big deal for a few years. Yep. And they were looking for where did all this stuff come from? You know, how did this whole scene in Portland get started? And Sasha and some of those guys found out about me and they collected up as much info as they could and they kind of highlighted me so I went into Portland to see what was going on and they're going hey man maybe you think you should think about making bikes again 
I'm going, oh, I don't think so. You know, <laughs> it's too hard to make any money. Oh no, no, you can get, you can charge a decent price for a frame now. And so I started thinking about it, and I made a bike for Bryant Bainbridge, who was one of the very most important people at Specialized when I was there, and he had worked for Nike and Sims Fishing and Converse, and he was really smart and um, he had a lot of experience with business and stuff, and we remained friends over the years, so I made a bike for him and took it to something in Portland, I don't remember what they called it, some kind of contest. And mm-hmm. People said, oh yeah, this is really cool. So I was encouraged, and I thought, well, I got time. I got these skills, so I guess it's time to design, design a new bike. And I could make it out of anything I wanted to make it out of. I knew about all the metals and the materials and the processes and stuff. And it came down to where I thought, you know, a good practical bike, that's high performance. It's more like these gravel bikes are now. You know, mm-hmm. I said, you know, I can make a race bike. I can make these gravel kind of bikes. I can. I don't see the big companies doing this, and I'm just going to make the best steel bike I can. So that, I spent a year just doing computer modeling. I'd design something and look at it and think I could improve it and make some sketches and stuff and do it over and just keep. You know, I was working on the tubes, and I thought, well, I can do this with the tube if I make the lug like that, the bottom bracket or the dropouts or whatever, the fork crown especially. So I just made everything work hand-in-hand with each other. You know, the whole thing is just designed to, to work together. And that's something that's pretty unusual, as I understand it. You don't normally have a lug set designed to work with a a specific tube set. Right. You know, you can design a tube set to be welded, but to design a tube set to work with lugs, you have to know what the lugs look like ahead of time. So are you designing the tube because of the way the lug looks, works, or are you designing the lug because of the tube that was already there? So... It's handy to be able to just do everything all at once. Yeah, yeah. So that lug set and tube set that you designed, Specialized had Toyo build 74 frames from that, and now you're the only person working uh, with that tube set. To my mind, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm unfamiliar with anyone else uh, in the in the building world, in the bike industry, who's ever had such a complete vision of what uh, the components of a bike frame could be and then go on to build them into a frame themselves. Yeah, I I can't think of anybody that has done that. I mean, maybe somebody has. I'm, some of the carbon guys, I'm sure they feel confident that that's what they're doing, but not with the... A bike, a steel bike frame. I can't think of anybody. Yeah. But, you know, that doesn't mean I know everybody out there that's doing whatever. I try to keep an eye on it. And that's one of the things that really drew me to what you were doing 
with that tube set. Uh, there was, I don't know, it seemed like it was an entire afternoon that I spent on the phone with Bryant Bainbridge after you'd finished that work and Specialized had made the announcement. And I just sat slack-jawed. He was sending me PDF files over the computer as we were talking uh, and walking me through stuff. You know, the, the D-shaped chainstay that would allow a little bit more room for the cassette in there. Uh, things like that. Just little bitty touches that only someone who really has been in the trenches would ever do. And it really got my attention. I mean, you were already very much on my radar as a result of winning Best in Show at NABs a year or two before that. Um, I remember a, a chain guide you'd done, you know, for one of the bikes that you built. And it was just the cleanest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Yeah, it was uh, for some single-speed front-end. Yeah, that's right. It was. I thought about putting a chain guard on that bike, and I thought, nah, you know, I'm going to make this thing look a little more racy. And the guy that was getting the bike, he didn't, I don't know if the guy's even ridden it. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, okay, let's make something really cool and clean, and that came out nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, every bike you've you've bothered to bring to NABs has been truly noteworthy. Your frames aren't exactly cheap. I mean, so it follows that they should be pretty impressive. They, you know, a frame set can run as much as a complete bike, but there's a solid reason you charge what you do. Talk to me a little bit about how one calculates uh you know it's not just a matter of of oh i put this many hours into it you know there's a a, a more difficult calculus than that oh the price i was charging before wasn't enough <laughs> so i added some to it and just to see if you know like people would throw me out or not um it's really there's no reasonable business acumen used on this thing at all it's just seat of the pants <laughs> totally <laughs> okay shoot that idea down <laughs> um all right well let's get on to a, a question i'm much more interested in knowing more about you know and that's your lug work of all the things that you're known for in my estimation it's the lug work you do on your frames you still file the points down to a 16th of an inch, you know, without dulling that shoreline. And then you add brass fillets to smooth the transitions on the lugs. And I respect you may not do that with every single frame, but when you're out to make a statement, that's certainly a part of what you do. I know that the practice of filing lugs started because so many lugs were really pretty ugly. The castings were cheap, kind of sloppy. And to make a good frame, the lug needed to be cleaned up significantly. But we've got investment cost stuff that's now, you know, super clean. It doesn't really need the same level of work. You know, talk to me about uh, the the practice of adding brass fillets. You know, we, we mentioned Eisentrout in there. You know, where else might might that have emerged from? I'm still trying to gather history on this and just can't seem to find the bottom of this particular barrel. I think the first time I saw that stuff was uh, 
Rene Herze or mm-hmm. Sanjay, probably. I think they did it for looks. I don't, it doesn't really add any strength. I don't do that on all the bikes. I just do that if somebody requests it. Mm-hmm. It's not necessary. Um, it looks cool, you know. So that it does. It's a it's a chromium plated wheel embellisher. <laughs> it doesn't add any performance, really. But you know, <laughs> it's cool. Well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure where all that stuff came from. I, I went back to Dale's. Uh, rendezvous thing you know this mm-hmm. year classic and, rendezvous yeah and uh those guys have some amazing stuff some of the work that's been done in the past i saw a 1951 colnago it looked pretty french if it didn't have any paint on it but it had chrome lugs that were beautifully made the dropouts were beautiful i mean really impressive and those guys, they've got all kinds of, especially the French guys, they they went pretty overboard on a lot of cool stuff on their frames. Right. I mean, other than Mozzie, I don't recall too many Italian builders, virtually no Italian builders uh, other than Mozzie, were really filing points, uh, certainly not like reshaping points. The vast majority of all the Italian stuff I've seen over the years was you know, they cleaned up the lug as much as they needed to to get it brazed into a, a nice frame, but they weren't sexing it up the way some of the uh, French builders were. Chanelli, Chanelli has made some beautiful bikes. Certainly, certainly. And uh, they were pretty, they had a lot of handwork on them, on some of them. Yeah. Uh, in terms of Americans, you know, as you've built over the years, you know, who were some of the guys that you drew inspiration from? Well, I guess Eisentrout. That blew me away. And I didn't know who Peter Johnson was, but he was <laughs> making bikes that looked a lot like mine in the Bay Area. Yep. We're good friends now. Uh, you know, I'm still, I guess I get some inspiration out of his uh attention to following that path i mean he's he's really a, an affectionado i can see how you two would be kindred spirits yeah you know um, i hadn't seen him for years and he was in portland the same time i was and we met at bryant's house and he came in and gave me a big hug and he gave me a so i gotta go out to the car he goes comes back with a paper shopping bag grocery bag he goes, here. I go, what's this? He goes, do you have any dual-stage regulators? I go, no, I just got single-stage ones. He goes, here, here's some regulators for your torches. So any gas that comes out of my tanks has the Peter Johnson juju in there to help me, which is very cool. Now, I mean, I'm going to guess that our listeners don't know much about this, and I'll confess that I don't know the value of that. <laughs> Would you break that down for us, please? Oh, it's just a superstition or something, you know? If Peter had these uh, regulators that, you know, for regulating how much pressure goes into your acetylene torch, and it was in his shop for a long time, and he used them and stuff, it's just, I'm kind of joking, but, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a superstition. 
religion or something. This is cool. Okay. Okay. It's the, the brotherhood, you know? That part I can appreciate for sure. Okay. So back to lug work. You've done some frames in which you added an extra flourish to the lug transition by adding a vertical ridge along the center plane of the frame, almost like webbing. I'm curious, what inspired you to do that? And how did you ensure that that ridge was so perfectly true? Do you create guides of some sort, or is it all, for want of a better term, freehand? Oh, it's freehand. Um, I had I done that on God. some strawberry bikes. And then, you know, didn't do it for a lot of years. And when someone makes the request, I thought, well, I'll put a ridge on there because that way you can actually see it, for one thing. And it's really finicky, too, because just a few thousandths of an inch will make the ridge look different. At least when it doesn't have paint on it, you can see it really clearly. Mm -hmm. It's time-consuming. It's fun. Looks cool. Like I say, no performance benefit. You know, the lugs are not thinned to look cool. The idea is to have the lugs is a separate butt, and you want the lug to be slightly weaker than the tube at the edge of the lug. Right. So that way, when the, the tube flexes, it doesn't see a stress riser at the edge of the lug, but as the lug gets thicker, transitioning back up to where the tube miter is, then it stops that area from moving. So you get a longer fatigue life. You can't get that with the weld or um, uh, bronze welding, you know, fillet brazing. You know, the best way to do it is with a lug, and it it is by far the most time-consuming way to do it. That's why you don't see many bikes made with lugs anymore. Right. It's, it's expensive process. Yeah. Now, also, you know, one of the things that I've seen when someone is a newer builder and they try to do that is that they don't manage to keep that edge of the lug nice and square. It ends up getting rounded off as opposed to just thinned. I mean, other than just, you know, doing it a lot of damn times, how do you develop a feel for that? What is it you have to do in order to keep that edge nice and square? Well, you just have to respect the purpose of the lug. I think people that round off the lugs to make them look a little thinner on the edge don't understand the purpose of a thin lug. You know, it needs to be a smooth transition from the edge of the lug to the, the termination of the tube, you know. And I think if they respected that, they would probably, they'd come out looking more like mine. I mean, I'm not really doing it to have them look a certain way. I'm doing it because I know that they need to function in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so when you produce a frame, now that we've talked about all this crazy handwork that you are inclined to do, uh, a less a less elaborate frame, how many hours will have will that have it in it? And then, you know, something where you've done the the brass fillets, how much more time is involved in a frame like that? You know, the brass fillets are probably. 5% more time. I mean, 
I don't really want to tell you how long it takes me to make a frame because it's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> it takes a long time. Uh, to me, it's a sign of care. So I, I don't, I don't think there would be any reason to be embarrassed by it. And honestly, I think when someone is buying uh, a custom frame from a builder, the notion that they got, say, 25 hours of that builder's time or 40 hours of that builder's time as opposed to 10 hours, I think generally speaking, people like knowing that they had more of your sweat involved in that bike. Okay, put it this way. If I had two really long days and I was hauling ass and everything was working really well, I could maybe make a fork. So, (laughs) you know, um, that's something else, too, I'd like to bring up. is I don't see the fork as a component. I don't buy a carbon fork and stuff it in the frame and say, there, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I like to adjust the fork rake for the head angle and for the person. If they got heavy shoulders or light shoulders or if they're going to run fat tires or skinny tires or whatever, I like to have control over the fork because it's a super important part of the bike frame. It's not a component. So, you know, I don't use carbon forks. And if I did, I could slap a disc brake on there and make people happy. But the fork is super important. The fork blades are, they start off with a one-inch diameter tube, and they taper down to 12.5 millimeters. It's half as big as one inch. And steel is air-hardening steel. And when you work it, when you cold form it, and when you taper the tube, it gets harder. And it's hard to make that taper. And that changes the hardness, which is the strength of the tube as it goes from a very small tip to the original diameter. Mm-hmm. So you have to heat treat it. And then we found out that because the wall thickness is thin, really thin on the fork, we were unable to bend them in the normal way when you can use a mandrel and bend the tube cold. They, we ran into problems with buckling, and even after heat treating the blade had different hardnesses in there that we couldn't fully anticipate. So when you try to bend the blade, it would start to wrinkle. So the blades have to be, I think it's uh, induction heated in, in one area, and then the blade is bent a little bit, and then they move the induction heater or the tube in there, and they keep bending it. So the tube has to be bent hot, basically, but it's only in small areas that it's hot. And then it has to get heat treated again for anneal, and then they heat treat it again for to bring it up to the full strength, which is about 170 to 180,000 psi, which is about as strong as you're going to get the steel tubing. Right. Wow. And you know, I could bring something up here now too, because uh, True Temper's not making bike tubes anymore, but. They had a tube called the S3. It's yep. a big diameter tube, and it's thin-walled. And they said it's 200,000 PSI. But when I was working with uh, Randy, and he was asking me questions when uh, Very Wall was coming up with some bike tubes, he got tubes, and he tested them. And we found those S3 tubes were 103,000 PSI. And 
some famous custom builders will tell you that their tubes are twice as strong as the old Reynolds 531 or Columbus SL, but at 103,000 PSI, that's, you know, Columbus was probably 120,000 PSI. So those tubes weren't even as strong as the new tubes. There's a lot of that kind of exaggeration going on out there. That's a little scary. I've got a frame made from S3. The disc brakes? Uh, no, no. Good. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I'm uh, going to breathe a little deeper now. Um, wow. Okay, so we've covered how much time you put into a frame, uh, sort of. <laughs> You're still being a little cagey on that. That's all right. Uh, you know, given all that you've done in the bike industry at this point, you know, what... What is it that gets you up in the morning, gets you excited? Is it a new client? Is it a, a different sort of project? What are you looking for out on the horizon? Well, paying my property taxes probably has something to do with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've been talking to a guy in Munich, Germany, um, and I... Uh, Got to answer an email, a guy from Jakarta right now. I meet interesting people. The people that are interested in my bikes are, uh, man, I've just met the very best people. Because, you know, what I do, it's not obvious. You know, by having this talk with you, I hope more people become aware of what I do. But the people that take the time to figure out that my work is special, they're, well, one guy... He worked at a place where they could see the light coming into your eyes, turning into the sort of digital information at the back of your retina. You know, the analog light comes in your eye, and they had a, some kind of super-duper micro, microscope, and they could see in real time. You know, this blows me away. I don't get it. At the speed of light, they could see this thing happening in your retina, and it changes that information before it goes into your brain. You know, I, I mean, I've met people like that. Mm. So that's one of the cool things is the people I meet. That's, yeah, I, I can see how that would certainly keep you going. Man. Uh, but, you know, back to the larger question, you know, is there anything in the bike industry that you haven't done that you are itchy to do or anybody out there who you think, Oh, I, I, they're doing good work. I'd work on something with them. Well, I don't know if I should point this out, but, um, I've reached out to some people that didn't want to get involved with, I'd like to see a side pull brake that would fit bigger tires. That was really high quality. Mm. And I haven't done that yet. And, I'm thinking about trying to do that. Wow. That sounds that sounds pretty cool. I mean, I, I like the Velo Oranges that I'm riding, but I can see an opportunity there uh, where, you know, room for a little more tire and a fender or room for a really big tire. Uh, there, are, there are people who would get excited about that. Oh, I would hope so. But, you know, the market might be small. I just... I was looking at something today. The Tour de France guys were able to use disc brakes this year, and they had them out there at the early stages. And later on in the race, you know, everybody's using caliper brakes, most everybody. So 
the industry is trying to push, and they have been for a long time, these disc brakes. Mm-hmm. I asked Shimano seven years ago if they'd please make a brake that was Dura-Ace quality, that was bigger. And they said, no, I'll just buy the 105s. And I said, well, take the forgings and put Dura-Ace on the forgings and put Dura-Ace parts on them, you know? They were not interested at all. And I know, I've known those guys for years. Now they're the big shots in the company. And I go, come on, you guys. It's not that big a deal for you. And they're going, nah, we got, it's, you know, disc brakes because you don't have to have as many parts and it's just easier to make money selling disc brakes. Not that I'm against disc brakes. I think mm-hmm. they're great. You know, the, the market kind of dictates the parts you get instead of the other way around. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think I've got listeners who are going to be pretty excited to hear somebody with the background like yours say that about disc brakes. There's still among a certain portion of the bike populace that's pretty deeply suspicious of, of disc brakes. Well, you know, when they get some standards figured out, they'll be able to change wheels. You know, I think now you can't have the little Mavic motorcycle at the tour give you a wheel and expect the disc to not rub, you know. But yeah. they'll, get that, they'll get that figured out. Yeah, it seems to me like it's a matter of time before they they get that right. But yeah, until they do, neutral support is a joke. You know, even within your team, it's going to be a joke. You know, you have four sets of wheels with rotors on them. You know, they're not all going to sit in the caliper the same way. So I continue to see that being an issue for racers. Yeah, I noticed in the tour this year, the car gets up there and they just give them a new bike. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's the only way to be certain, you know, but then like, you know, you only have two cars. How many bikes per guy can you have? You know, that's, that's yeah. a whole separate issue. You know, there's only so much roof, uh, roof real estate. Yeah. And that's racing. You know, if you get a flat tire, it's a really big deal. And if you're a consumer and you get a flat tire, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. So, you know, consumers, would be willing to put up with disc brakes maybe even more than the racers. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting to watch this happening. Yeah, yeah. It's It's been nice to have a ringside seat to watching this play out. Um, and it's I've appreciated, you know, my time on disc brakes and, you know, seeing all the different caliper brakes out there and feeling like I, I'm reasonably well informed on you know, what the opportunities are, where the strengths are, where the weaknesses are. Um, I feel like I can, you know, speak without any real bias uh, toward encouraging people to unnecessarily replace bikes. But I do like disc brakes, man. Uh, They do work awfully well. Yep. Yeah. Cool, man. Not exactly. A new technology, they've been using discs for industrial purposes as a a clutch, well, a brake, you know, since machine tools had leather belts going down to operate them. You know, it's not a new thing. It's a good idea. But the rim is a really big disc. And I think if Mavic, for example, wanted to improve how calipers worked on the rim, they could do it. Because they had a rim, how, you know, 15, 20 years ago or something. They had ceramic coating on the yep. brake surface. 
Well, that? and and Boyd is doing that ceramic coating on on some of their wheels now. I've just begun riding a set of their Altamont wheels that have that ceramic coating on them. So, you know, even though Mavic is doing what they were doing, you know, to the degree they were anyway, uh, ceramic rims are out there. Cool. Yeah. 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 Well, that's got to be beneficial for carbon too, because it keeps some of the heat out of the rim. Yeah, absolutely. I, I haven't seen anybody do a uh, ceramic coating on a carbon rim yet. These are all aluminum rims, but you got to figure somebody's going to give that a try. Yeah, or you could spray metal matrix on there with uh, a high percentage of aluminum oxide or silicon carbide or something, and it would not wear, and it would be grippy. So it should be interesting to see what uh, Boyd's up to, what kind of ceramic they're putting on there. That's neat. Yeah, well, that guy's determined. So uh, I'm curious to see what else they do in the future. Yeah. Man, this has been a treat. I really appreciate this. I know that we could go on for another hour easy. Uh, maybe we'll we'll figure out another excuse uh, to get back on the phone sometime for another interview. Okay. <laughs> good, good talking to you. Likewise. And we will see you in October at the Red Kite Rendezvous. You will, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't yeah, oversell it. <laughs> no, I'm, I just mean it'll be unfortunate that I'm there. Um, I, 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 it should be cool. <laughs> it should be cool. It'll be a very good time. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I know you'll have at least one great bike on display there. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is it white? Uh, it's partly white, mostly white. Yeah. <laughs> good. Yeah, some I'm some covered. nice stripes on it. Yeah, um, it's just below me as we speak. Cool. Yeah. Alrighty, Mark. Thank you much. Okay, Patrick. Take care. Thanks to my guest Mark Danucci for joining me on the poll. To learn more about his work, you can visit DanucciCycles.com. There will be a link in our show notes at Red Kite Prayer, as well as links to other pieces I've written about him. That's it for this episode of the poll. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, I hope you'll leave the show a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your media. Finally, if you're not already listening to RKP's other podcast, The Paceline, co-hosted by Celine Yeager, a.k.a. The Fit Chick from Bicycling Magazine, I encourage you to give us a listen. Until next week, have a great ride.